You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Stonegate, how are we doing today? Good. It's good to see you. So glad you're here today. And if you are new to the Stonegate family, if this is your first time to be here, if you would please do one thing for us, it would really help us serve you, and we would consider it just such a, a, a help for us. If you'll make sure you grab that card under your seat, you should find one side that's black and one side that's red. The red side would be for anyone in our church family who you are just in a place where you need us to be interceding on your behalf. We would love to do that. So you can fill out the red side of that card for a prayer request and put that in the offering basket, and that will go onto our public prayer list. Um, or if you are a first-time guest with us today, if you'll fill out the black section of that card and put it in the offering basket at the end of the service, that would just give us your information where we can send you some things in the, the mail this week and email this week that will get you some information that I think would help you along the way. And so if you'll do that for us, that would be so, so helpful. And secondly, just one bit of house cleaning. If you have been uh, around the Stonegate family for a while, you know that we are in the middle of a two-year season of generosity called All In. And uh, that in February, we did a set of sermons called Risk that lifted up that same theme of what it means to walk by faith. And that culminated on March 5th as we uh, had a recommitment Sunday for the last year of All In, the final and last year. And so if you missed that, uh, we still have commitment cards out and available. You know, from the get-go, our... Our primary goal has been that would 100% of our church family, everyone who calls this church home, would be a part of that journey of learning. What does it mean to go all in? What does it mean to risk and walk by faith in Jesus? And so if you haven't uh, made that commitment for the last year of all in, uh, that commitment card is over at the prayer table. When you finish the service today, you might stop by there. You can fill that out, drop it in the basket over at the prayer table, and that would allow you to, to be able to participate in that. We're still a couple of weeks away from kind of giving that final number for the last year of all in. So if you'll do that before that, that would be absolutely wonderful. Okay, so today we are starting a set of sermons called The Family. And I think the origins of, of even where this set of sermons begins for me goes back probably 15, 16 years ago. Uh, Laura and I were sitting in a, uh, in a marriage conference and we're listening to the guy uh, talk and he asked the question. He says, I want you to, to fill in this blank. Fill it in with the word that you would think would be most appropriate. Your church is only as strong as blank. What fits in there? And I just remember in the moment, I mean, just the Rolodex is happening. I'm thinking, man, is it faith? Is it lead? Like, what's the blank? And he, I just will never forget his response to that. He looks at that crowd and says, uh, here's my answer to that. Your church is only as strong as the individual families that make up your church family. And I just, I, you know, I had no idea at that point that I would one day plant a church and that God would, would kind of move us in that direction. Uh, but I do know this, that I think it was in that moment that God began to solidify that one of the things that we would love to see a church family be for its people is almost like a greenhouse where men and women could grow into godly men and women who would then become, most of them, godly husbands and wives as they marry. And most of them then would become godly pastors or parents in their home as God gives them the gift of children. That, that God would create a church family like this where we would be a greenhouse for everyone to grow up in Jesus so that they could be all of those sorts of things. Godly single men and women, godly husbands and wives, godly uh, moms and dads, that God would be creating a church family for that and with that. So I, I think this set of sermons is really just an expression of us saying, God, by your grace, will you do that for us? And there's several reasons why I think this is so important. Richard Baxter was an old Puritan pastor, and just to paraphrase, I, I love what he used to say. He said, if you ever want to see revival in your community, you better first work for revival in your homes. This is where revival starts. If you want to see it go widespread up here, you've got to make sure it's happening down here. So if we want to see God do incredible things in our community, and don't we? We want to see God do that, don't we? If we want to see that, that starts in the context of the home. And, and another reason why I think a set of sermons like this is so important for us to think about marriage, for us to think about parenting, for us to think about what does it mean to be a healthy single man or single woman? What does it mean for us to be a church family who would love and be family for our singles? I think another reason why that's so important is because life has a way of taking our attention off of what is most important and focusing our attention on what is most urgent. This is just the way life works in your life and in my life. 
As soon as we take our, our eye off the ball of what's most important, life just has a way of, of taking our attention and focusing it right over on all the little pressing fires in your life and mine. So that what we would confessionally say is important in our lives isn't necessarily being lived out in our lives. I, I think if I gave all of us like a, just a, a random quiz that says, what's the most important things in your life? Probably for most of us in the room, we would talk about if we're single, me living as a godly single man or a godly single woman. If we're married, we would say me living as a godly husband and cultivating um, our marriage and me living as a godly wife if we're a lady. And if we've got kids, we'd probably say parenting and like raising our kids to know that those are all really important things. But those really important things can so often be sacrificed on the altar of the urgent. Just the altar of like what's you know, going on right now. And, and I think I'm probably walking out on a very sturdy limb when I say that there is a really great chance that most of us in the room, you know, life is just kind of happening at this lightning sort of pace in our lives. And for most of us in the room, our attention is not on what is most important. It's just not there. I think it would be fair to say that most of us who are single have not been thinking a ton about, man, this is a beautiful gift that God has given me in my singleness. What would it look like for me to use this for God's glory? Most of us aren't thinking about that great gift like that. Most of us who are married, it's not that we would not say our marriage is important. It's just that we're not thinking about the importance of our marriage. Many of us are probably neglecting the proactive cultivation of a great marriage, pulling weeds in our marriages so that our marriage can flourish and be all that God would have it be. Most of us aren't thinking right now that our kids are great gifts from God, great gifts from the Lord. And it is one of our joyful privileges to step into that massive responsibility and to pastor and shepherd our kids as, as God's image bearers to be all that God would have them be. Most of us aren't thinking like that. So by God's grace, I would love for us to take some time to think about those things in a really intentional way. And by God's grace, I'm praying that in my own life and in your life, we would grow in these areas. So that's the hope. That's the intention. That's where we're going to be spending our time over the next uh, couple of months. So with that, today, we are starting with marriage. Marriage. And today I want to ask and answer two questions about marriage. Question number one, what is marriage? Question number two, what is marriage for? So what is it and what is it for? What is it and what is it for? So we'll take question number one first. What is marriage? Now to answer that question, we need to go all the way back to the beginnings of the Bible. In the beginnings of the Bible, we learn so much about everything else. In a really tangible way, the first few chapters of the Bible are in some ways, the most important in the Bible. Francis Schaeffer, a, uh, a really good uh, theologian of the last century, he used to say it this way. He says, in some ways, these chapters in Genesis are the most important chapters in the Bible. Here's the reason. For they put man in his cosmic setting and show him in his peculiar uniqueness. They explain both man's wonder and his flaw. The first couple of chapters of the Bible show us this is who God is. This is who we are. This is why we are. This is all the things that are right with us, and here's the things that are wrong with us. It's showing us all of those sorts of things in the first couple of chapters of the Bible. So when you open it in Genesis chapter 1, uh, let me just do a cursory glance and overview of Genesis chapter 1. When you open the Bible and you turn to Genesis 1.1, you have a, a, an incredible thing happen in the first few words of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that singular moment, God creates everything. He just, out of nothing, here it is. I mean, that's, that's a crazy beginning in the Bible. And then you have the six days of creation where God is ordering and arranging and making what he has created habitable for mankind. His glorious kind of crown of his creation coming on day six. And then you get to day six at the end of Genesis 1, and here's what we find. That God makes man in his own image. So this is the first thing we learn. God makes us in his own image. Bestowing dignity on every human being. Every human being has a unique dignity as God's image bears. He creates us male and female. Creating two distinct and different genders. And then he blesses man and the woman. And he really gives them two tasks as he blesses them. And here are the two tasks that he gives. One is procreation. 
So he, he tells them, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So procreation is one task, and then domestication. He looks at them and says, I want you to subdue the earth. You're my image bearers, and as my image bearers, you're going to represent me. And as my representatives, I want you to extend my rule just like I would extend it. I want you to be a faithful representative of my good authority and my good rule as you subdue creation, as you steward creation, as you make something, as you work it, and as you keep it, and as you create in it. I want you to be good representatives of, of me. So Genesis chapter 1 starts out with a bang. I mean, it is, a, it is an eye-popping kind of beginning to the Bible. Now, I want you to imagine reading the Bible for the very first time, and you read Genesis 1, and it's just crazy. God just made everything, right? And then you're thinking, how in the world is he going to follow that up? Like, what would God do next to match that? If this is like the original kind of Genesis 1 moment, what would be the appropriate sequel that could match that? What would God do next in that? And listen to, to Ray Ortland. He recently wrote a book called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel that has been so helpful for me personally, but so helpful for even this sermon in a lot of ways. Um, and I would just encourage you if, you, if you need a good book on marriage, that would be a really good readable book to grab, Marriage and the Mystery of, uh, of the Gospel. But Ray Ortland in that book says this about what do, we, what do we actually see as the sequel in Genesis chapter 2. He says, after the heavens and the earth come together in the first creation, that's Genesis 1, a man and a woman come together in their first marriage, that's Genesis 2. Surprisingly, the Bible moves from cosmic majesty in Genesis 1 to common everyday reality in Genesis 2, a young couple falling in love and getting married. That's Genesis 2. Now, that would lead to this question. Either one of two things are happening in Genesis 2. Either the Bible has misplaced the priority and kind of the preeminence of marriage. Either the Bible thinks like too highly of marriage, and so it puts it in Genesis chapter 2, like right as the sequel to the creation of the universe. Or, and I'm going to argue for this one, right? The Bible sees marriage as something much more than we commonly see it. The Bible sees marriage as a big, big deal. Maybe it's that. And I think that's what we find in the scriptures. So in Genesis chapter 2, in essence what you've got is you've got a slowing down of the last few chapters of Genesis 1. It, it pauses and lingers over the creation of the man and the woman. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15... Uh, God comes to, to the man who is in the garden. He uh, gives him a prohibition. He's given him everything to eat, everything to enjoy in the garden, but then he gives the prohibition. Uh, he looks at him and says in verse 15, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now I love what one commentator says about verse 15. He says, the divine warning of verse 15, that divine warning of if you eat of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil, you're going to surely die. He says that divine warning stands like a door whose name announces only what lies beyond it. In that moment, he is just warning us. Of if, if you walk, Adam and Eve, if you walk through that door and you eat that forbidden fruit, you are going to unleash death and hell right behind it. It's just this divine warning in verse 15. Then you get to, to verse 18. And in verse 18, an interesting thing happens. The Lord looks at his creation and he says this, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now think about this in the setting here. God looks at his pristine creation and he makes a surprising observation. Everything thus far, he's created something and he's called it good. He looks at another part of his creation, he calls it good. Another part of his creation, he calls it good. Another part of his creation, he calls it good. Then you get to this moment and you're expecting him to look at man in the garden and say, it's great, it's awesome. But he doesn't say that. He looks at his creation here and says, it's not good. Now in the Hebrew, there's a couple of different ways that you can say not good. You can say uh, one way that's less emphatic. You can say it's like, it's just void of good. So it's kind of like neutral. Another way you can talk about that is not just that it's neutral, but it's like on the proactive bad side. It's not just that it's lacking something, it's just that it is bad in and of itself. And that's the way he describes it not being good. It's not neutral, not good. It is like 
negative or minus. It's way down here, not good. God is looking at man alone in the garden, and here is what God thinks. It is unthinkable for me to leave man like that. That is not good. That is minus not good. That is so not good to even think about leaving man like that. Now, here's what's interesting. God doesn't immediately fix the problem. He doesn't immediately meet the need that Adam has. Here's what he does. And one of the reasons, by the way, is because Adam doesn't even know that he's missing something at this point. That there is something that's not good in the garden. So you get to verse 19. Here's Here's what God does to solve the not good problem. And now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So in verse 18, God sees Adam's need and not good, what's not good, but Adam doesn't see what's not good. So God doesn't and isn't going to squander one of his best gifts on an ungrateful man. So he helps awaken the need in Adam and the sense of not goodness in Adam. So how does he do that? He begins parading animals in front of Adam. And Adam begins naming the animals. And you just can imagine, here comes a lion. Adam looks at the lion in all of its majesty and calls it a lion. And it comes the next animal and the next. And Adam just naming the animals. And I just personally kind of picture that the last animal was probably a dog. I mean, it doesn't get much better, and you don't have, there's few other animals that are as good of a companion as a dog, is there? And and so the dog comes beside Adam, and he names that animal, and then as the dog is just wagging his tail, looking up at Adam, just, I mean, just loving on Adam, Adam just looks at the dog, it's like, as great as the dog is, the dog's not like me. He's great. I like the dog, but he's not of my kind. He's a different sort of thing. All of these animals and all of their majesty and all of their goodness, they're great, but they're just not me. They're not a suitable helper for me. So God awakens what is not good now in Adam, and now Adam sees what is not good. And then you get to verse 21. And I I think in some ways the story slows down here. And it says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. You can just imagine God and just his tender love toward Adam, looking at Adam and saying, son, I want you to lay down. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to go to sleep because I'm about to bless you with something that's going to blow your mind. I'm about to give you something that's going to make you weep in joy. Adam, I'm about to do something for you that right now your mind can't even comprehend how good of a thing I'm about to do for you. So Adam, close your eyes and let's just see what happens. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I mean, when I think about that little, like verse 22, God creates the woman, comes, presents her. I I just, I picture God just on his tiptoes with eager excitement watching what is about to happen to Adam when he sees this. I mean, one of my favorite just moments in a wedding is watching when the lady comes down the aisle, just looking at the guy's face. I love that moment. And I just kind of picture God doing something very similar. He's just watching what is about to happen to Adam's faith face as he, the the dad in in this scenario, who's created his son Adam and now his daughter Eve. He now walks Eve down the aisle and presents her to his son Adam. And then moving from a father now to a good pastor, he now unites them together in marriage. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus refers back to this this moment in Genesis. And uh, in, in that passage in Matthew 19, Jesus makes this extra comment. He gives this extra insight on marriage. And he says, it's God who joins Adam and Eve together, and it's God who joins us together in marriage. So as a father, he presents Eve to Adam, but as a pastor, he takes his son and daughter, Adam and Eve, and he unites them together in marriage. Now, when Adam, when he sees this bride walking down the aisle, He is then united with her in marriage. He just can't contain it. 
And he breaks out in song in verse 23. He receives this gift from God with a glad heart and just praises and worships God in light of this gift. Then the man said in verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now, it's just an interesting kind of tangential note here. This is the first, like, the first lines of human poetry. Here they are. This is the first time that song or human poetry exists in human history. Now, think about what poetry or what song is for. There are moments in every human life that are just filled with emotion. And in those big emotion moments in your life and in my life, words oftentimes hit their ceiling. Like when we say a simple sentence, it just doesn't convey what the emotion was in that moment. It just can't do it. So what did God give us to take language a step or two further? He gave us song and he gave us poetry. This is what God gave us in that moment. And so what happens to Adam? This is such a massive moment that simple words won't work. So he breaks out, he takes it a step further to try to describe his appreciation and admiration and delight in this woman and he breaks out in poetry or song. Now in a lot of ways, Adam is showing us what every wise and godly husband will be continually doing and what every wise and godly wife will be continually doing. We'll be receiving that gift of a spouse with a glad heart affirming what a wonderful gift this is from God. That, that apart from Jesus, this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given me. That's what a wise husband and a wise wife will continually be doing, just like Adam is here. Then you get to verse 24. And verse 24 starts with the word, therefore. Now, therefore is a really important word in this text because it sets verse 24 off. It's making a break in the narrative. I love how one guy described that break in the narrative. He said, picture, picture you sitting in your living room with Moses who wrote this. That'd be a, a cool moment. You're sitting in your living room with Moses and he turns on the DVD player and he pushes play on the DVD and, and Genesis 1 and 2 start playing. You're watching on the screen the creation of the universe, the forming of, of all that we see. And then it gets to Genesis 2 and you're watching the creation of the man and the woman, God making the woman, bringing her to, to the husband and then being married and God joining them together. And then you get to the therefore and it's as if, it's a way for Moses to say, I'm pushing pause on the narrative. And then Moses turns to you on the couch and says, now I need to make a summary statement of what you just saw. And what I'm about to say is not just me describing what you just saw, it's me showing you and telling you what marriage is back in Genesis 2 and for all time in all places and in all cultures. Verse 24 is God's definition of marriage. Moses is setting it apart as something that is outside the narrative. It's a summary statement. It's a way for Moses to summarize and to say, now let me show you what you just saw. For all time, this is what marriage is. Whenever you ask the question, what does the Bible think about marriage? How does the Bible define marriage? You, all you need to go to is Genesis 2.24. It's what Jesus quotes when he wants to define marriage. It's what Paul quotes when he wants to define marriage. This is the definitive word on marriage in the Bible. Genesis 2.24, and it goes like this. Therefore, all times, all places, all culture, this is what marriage is. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is marriage. That's how the Bible thinks about marriage. That's how the Bible define, uh, defines marriage. Ray Ortland takes that verse and summarizes it and puts it in just contextual language like this. I think it's a good summary of what marriage is. He says it like this. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one woman and one man. That's what marriage is. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one woman and one man. Now, we live in a culture that is all sorts of confused about marriage, asking all sorts of questions about marriage. And if you just kind of stick your finger up to the cultural winds, here is what you would probably think about marriage. 
that marriage is just some, you know, group of people, however that's going to be defined, getting together mainly for the, for the purpose of personal fulfillment. That is what marriage is in our culture. And we live in a culture now that is trying to expand what marriage means. But I want you to hear this just as clearly as I can say it. You cannot just expand what marriage means. When our culture wants to expand what marriage means, it is fundamentally redefining what marriage is. Now, let's take it a step further. Here's the problem with that. Marriage is not our idea. Democracy is our idea. Marriage is not our idea. Marriage didn't come about because people sort of like socially evolved over time, kind of figured some things out and thought, you know the best arrangement for people to live in? It's in marriage. That's not how it came about. Marriage sprang forth from the bowels of God. That's how it came about. From the deep intuition of God. That's where marriage came about. Marriage is God's thing. He's the one that invented marriage. And because it's God's creation, only God has the prerogative to define it. If we created it, then we could define it. But if God created it, then only he gets to define it. And marriage is God's creation. It wasn't something that you and I just thought of one day. It's something that God thought of in eternity past and planted into the cosmos. So this is marriage. One mortal life fully shared between one woman and one man. Now look back at Genesis 2.24. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and, and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, this, this one flesh union that's happening called marriage takes precedence over every other human relationship. There is no other human relationship that is more important than that one when you enter into it. Therefore, a, a man and, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Then the next phrase, and they shall become, and this is like right, th these two words form so much of what marriage is. They shall become one flesh. That's the math of marriage. Two individual people coming together as one unified person. That's what marriage is. Marriage is unlike every or any other human relationship that you have. In every other friendship that we have, there are appropriate boundaries that should be in place in those friendships. There are appropriate walls that should be in place in those friendships. There are certain places that friends should not be able to go in your life. But marriage is the one unique human relationship where all of those walls, spiritual, physical, emotional, all of those walls come down and another human being is invited all the way in so that you are one. Two people now a unified one. I love how Ray Ortland goes on to describe this. He says it this way. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us. There's marriage. In real terms, two selfish me start learning to think like one unified us, building new life together with one total everything. There's just one everything once you get married. There's one story. There's one purpose. There's one reputation. There's one bed. There's one suffering. There's one priority. There's one budget. There's one family. There's one just fill in the blank of every other possible way we can relate to one another. It's just one once you get married. He goes on. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces all of those barriers with a comprehensive oneness. And a comprehensive oneness is what makes marriage sacred, distinct, and different from every other human relationship. Now, one of the ways that I think about marriage, and I think this is just a helpful illustration for it, is the moment that you say yes to, to that man or that woman, you are stepping into a circle. And, in that, and then they step into that circle. And in that circle, there is no other human being that, that is welcome to come into it. Parents are not welcome in that circle. As great as parents are, they're not welcome in that circle. Kids are not welcome in that circle. As great as kids are, they're not welcome in there. Your best friend isn't welcome in that circle. Your coworker isn't welcome in that circle. So, so maybe just as an application point as we linger over this, maybe we could all just sit and think for a moment. I am, if you're married, I am married to this spouse. That spouse is in this circle with me. Is, isn't she? Isn't he? 
They're in the circle. Is there anyone else in that circle? Have we invited a parent into that circle? Have we invited a kid into that circle? Have I invited a friend into that circle? Same gender, opposite. Have I invited a friend into that circle? Am I, am I exposing more of my emotional life to, to a person that I'm exposing to my... Have I invited someone else deeper into this circle? And just, if, if the answer is yes to that this morning... Take this morning and this scripture as your invitation right now in this moment to kick that person out of the circle. No matter who they are, what they are, this is your invitation to remove them from the circle and to keep this circle around one man and one woman. This is like your invitation to do just that. This is what marriage is. It's comprehensive oneness. All the boundaries that exist between people are now melted down as you become one new unit with you and that spouse. This is what marriage is. And then you get marriage, or uh, you get Genesis 2.25, and where Genesis 2.24 shows the definition of marriage, Genesis 2.25 shows the delight of marriage. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now that is a wonderful picture of what marriage is. Not because it's, it's physical. That is one component of it. But, but nakedness is more than a physical thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a vulnerability thing. It's, it's nakedness in every area of your life. And you opening that nakedness up to another person who is in that comprehensive oneness with you. That's marriage. For you to be fully known by another human being and not embarrassed. For you to be fully known and not made fun of. For you to be fully known and it not be dangerous for you as you're fully known. That's what marriage is meant to be. That sort of comprehensive oneness where you can be naked on one sense and then unashamed, unembarrassed on the other as you're in this, this circle of comprehensive oneness. This is how the Bible thinks about, talks about marriage. This is what marriage is. Now let's answer the question, what is marriage for? What is marriage for? Now, to do that, we need to take the grand theme of the Bible and think about it for a minute. Think about what we find in the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, we find God creating everything. We find creation happening. Then in Genesis 2, what do we find? We find marriage happening, a man and a woman falling in love and getting married. That's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, isn't it ironic that when you go to the final chapters of the Bible, you see the exact same thing? In Revelation 21, you find God recreating the cosmos that has been warped and polluted and distorted by sin. And then you find not just a earthly marriage at the end of the Bible, you find the eternal marriage at the end of the Bible. And we find this in Revelation 21, the first two verses. This will be on the screen for you. Now just think about this. We know what's in the beginning of the Bible, creation and marriage. Now look at what's at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. That is God recreating and restoring this broken world. He's going to be doing that in the future. And then you find the last phrase here. Verse 2. And I saw the, the Holy City, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then look at what it says. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is the incredibly bright future that every son and daughter of God are going to experience. This moment where God is going to restore this broken world and we're going to be raptured up and brought into a marriage with God through Jesus. That, that's the incredibly bright future that's in front of us. If you want a way the Bible just thinks about heaven, it's like this. An eternal honeymoon with the God that you were created for. That's heaven. Where in that place with that God who you were created for, your joy day by day by day and for forever will be increasing. That's the incredibly bright future that God has waiting for you and for me. This is, now, now think about this. What do we see at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible? Creation, marriage, recreation, and the marriage. Listen to uh, one author describe this. He says it this way, it's not as though marriage is just one theme among many others in the Bible. 
Instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible, within which all the other themes find their places. That's how the Bible thinks and sees marriage, what what marriage is doing, what marriage is for. It's going from an earthly marriage, Genesis 2, all the way to an eternal marriage in, in Revelation 21. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5 gives us the last insight we need to answer the question, what is marriage for? He says it this way. This will be on the screen for you as well. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, he says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, he's quoting Genesis 2 again, right? This is where Jesus goes to define marriage. Paul goes to define marriage. This is the consistent definition of marriage throughout the scriptures. But then Paul adds this insight, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that this mystery, marriage, what we're talking about in Ephesians 5 here, I'm saying that what I'm talking about, that it refers to Christ and the church. Now that gives us a chance to answer the question, what is marriage for, in a very straightforward way. Here is the the Bible's answer to the question, what is the purpose of marriage or what is marriage for? Earthly marriages are metaphors of God's covenant love to his church. This This is why marriage exists. Earthly marriages are metaphors of God's covenant Covenant love to his church. I mean, isn't that crazy? The, the reason marriage is a thing that, that you and I think about and that you and I do and that, that is so present in the world, the reason it's a thing is because God wanted you and I to have an opportunity to paint a living, breathing picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. That's why marriage exists. Let me just tease this out. I mean, think about, why is it that men and women fall in love? Why is that? Why are those impulses in us? Why is it that, uh, I mean, I remember all the way back to Laura and I's first date and the first moment I held her hand. Why is it that in the first moment I held her hand, I literally felt like I stuck my hand into a light socket and like 220 volts, I mean, it just, what, what is going on in that moment? Why is that? Laura and I spent most of our uh, kind of dating and engagement period away from each other. And why is it when you're away from, like, from me, from Laura in that moment, that I longed so much for her? Why is that? Why is it that I would write ridiculous letter after ridiculous letter like every day while I was apart from her? What is going on there? What, what, what is happening? Why is it that we fall in love, that we have all of these sort of moments? Why is it that eventually so many of us get to that place of making that mega commitment as we throw our life in with another human being into that comprehensive oneness where a guy is saying, I will take responsibility for you. I will lay my life down in loving leadership of you. And the lady is saying, I'm going to entrust myself to that. What, what is, why is all that? Isn't that strange just to think about? Why, why is all of that happening? And the Bible gives a very clear answer to why all, of that, why all of that exists. The Bible is saying the reason all of those impulses are in you and me and us collectively is because they're functioning like a signpost. That's the reason that they're there. They're pointing beyond themselves to something else. When you see a woman and a man falling in love, their love is not pointing at them, it's pointing to something else. And the Bible is describing that something else. It is pointing to the unbreakable, never stopping, tender, sacrificial, gentle love of Jesus for his people and our joyful deference to him. That is what all of those things are meant to show you and me. That's why they exist. That's why marriage and love and all of these things happen. Maybe you can think of it this way. Every time you watch a man and woman start to like each other, fall in love with each other, they start writing poetry to each other, R&B songs kind of come out of that. I mean, you start watching all of those things happen. Do you know what you're seeing? You are seeing a reenactment of the divine love story. All of those moments are meant to take our gaze off of their love and they're meant to show us a different love, a divine love that would send his own son down to this earth 
And he would come not to kill us, to but to pursue us. Pursue us all the way across the enemy lines. We're throwing grenades at him all along the way. We are looking at a, at a groom pursuing us, thinking he's our enemy. But yet he pursues us through all of that. And he comes all the way to us across enemy lines. And there across enemy lines, he wins our heart over. And there across enemy lines, he proposes to us. He says, I would like to marry you. And the moment of conversion is the moment where we look back up at Jesus and we say, yes, I do to that. This is, this is the divine love story that every other smaller earthly love story is pointing to. Every time you hear a song celebrating love, every time you see a romantic comedy, every time you see it, all of those things, they are all pointing to that divine love story. I love how Jonathan Edwards describes this. To paraphrase, he says, marriage is the shadow, God's love is the substance. Marriage is the ray of light, like earthly love is the ray of light, God's love is the sun. Marriage is the stream, but God's divine love for us is the fountain. Marriage is the drop of water, God's love for us is the ocean. That's how the Bible sees it. All of these earthly little stories are just, they're just the shadows they're just, they're just pointing our attention, directing our gaze at that greater love story. Now, let me just work out three implications of this, and then we're done. Let me just quickly work out three things, and then we'll finish up. So what sort of implications do we draw from that? Here, here's the first one. Earthly marriages aren't ultimate. We need to know that. Earthly marriages are not ultimate things. And when you try to make them ultimate things, they cannot but disappoint you. The Bible actually says that every earthly marriage is a temporary arrangement. I mean, you just need to mark this verse down and go read it today. Matthew 12, 25. In that passage, Jesus is clearly saying, your earthly marriage is coming to an end. When you die, that marriage breaks. It is over. It fades away the moment that you die and you are wrapped up into eternity. So, so marriage is a temporary arrangement. Even the longest marriages just last for this life. The longest of them, just, just going to last here. So marriage is a temporary arrangement meant to point to an eternal reality. I love how one author says this. He says it this way. Marriage is temporary, and it will finally give way to the relationship to which it was always pointing, Christ and the church. The way a picture is no longer needed when you see it face to face. So when we see Jesus, the one we were made for face to face, all of our desire for earthly marriage is going to diminish as the one our hearts were made for steps into our hearts with unequaled access. That's going to be happening for every one of us. Now, let me just draw out an application of that. If you're single in the room, do you know what that means for you? You don't need to be married to, to, to be complete as a human being. Jesus wasn't married, right? He wasn't married. And he was the most complete human being that's ever existed. You, you were not made for an earthly marriage. You were made for an eternal marriage, right? Now, if you're married, and let me just go a step further. If you're married and your marriage is hell right now, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is you weren't made for that marriage. You were made for the marriage with God. And it's when your eyes are on the marriage with God that you can long suffer in a hellacious marriage. And if your eyes are not set on God, you will never be able to long suffer in a difficult marriage. But it's like when we start to set our eyes on that eternal marriage, what we were really made for, it gives us so much strength and durability as our marriages are doing this in our daily lives. So earthly marriages aren't ultimate. Implication number two, staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. Staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. It is mainly about keeping covenant. Now that cuts right across the grain of our contemporary culture who, who views, if you just, if you have the, your finger kind of up to the winds of culture, here's what, here's what our culture thinks about marriage. And it's probably seeped its way into your heart in some ways. This is just a good, you know, a, a moment to evaluate your own heart and life. Our culture sees marriage as the primary purpose of that marriage is my personal fulfillment. So if I am happy and I feel fulfilled, then I'm going to stay in this marriage. But if I'm not happy and I don't feel personally fulfilled, then I have no reason to stay in this marriage. 
That is the primary way culturally that our culture sees marriage. And the Bible could not be more opposed to that way of seeing marriage. I, I love how one author says it. He says, the purpose of marriage goes beyond personal fulfillment. The biblical purpose of marriage is not man-centered. It is God-centered. Your marriage is meant to point to the truth of the crucified and risen Savior who will return for his bride, the church. By the grace of God, your marriage is meant to be the best echo, the most faithful reflection of that relationship that you can possibly be. It's about being genuinely united in a strong, godly, intimate relationship that echoes the one between Christ and the church. That is the biggest and best thing that we could say about the purpose of marriage. If you want to get the purpose of marriage, that question all the way down to bedrock, here's what it's for. It's for pointing to the ultimate marriage, Jesus and his church. That's what it's for. Now he goes on to tease out the question, or, or just to play out the moment of, what about that moment when someone says, but I fell out of love with that person. I don't love them anymore. I'm not being fulfilled anymore. He goes on to say this, one profoundly legitimate response from the church or you might say from the Bible, is this. So what? I mean, yes, there's something to empathize with, but ultimately it's a so what? You being in love or out of love with someone is not decisive in you staying married. Keeping covenant is what is decisive about us staying married. So staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. It's mainly about keeping covenant. And then lastly, last implication would go like this. Your marriage is saying something. It's always saying something about Jesus. Your marriage is always saying something. It's either telling the truth about God's love for us in Jesus or it's telling a lie about God's love for us in Jesus. I mean, th there's no question that, that part of what it means to tell the truth about God in our marriage is to stay married. That's one thing. But, but we can definitely say more than that, I think, can't we? We could also say that part of what it means to tell the truth about God in our marriage is that we are living as a faithful representative to God in our marriage. That as a husband, we are laying down our life in sacrificial service for our wife. As a wife, we are showing what it means to come under and entrust ourselves to the loving leadership of our husband, just like the church would do to Jesus, right? It means that we're faithfully living in those roles that God has called us to. Guys, if, if you're a married man and you're running around on your wife, you're neglecting your wife. You're saying things that would harm and hurt your wife. You're physically and verbally abusive to your wife. If you're doing those sorts of things, hear me, you're telling a lie about God. But when you lay your life down for your wife, you're telling the truth about God. And wives, when you disrespect your husband, when you dishonor your husband, when you don't forgive and you don't pursue... You're, you're, and you don't defer, you, you don't entrust yourself to his loving leadership. You're telling a, a lie about the church's relationship to God. But when you do those things, when you pursue and, and you run after and you chase and you heap with honor and you praise and you affirm in every way possible, you're telling the truth about all that the church is, you know, and, and how the church responds to Jesus. Telling the truth in your marriage is what we're married for. I mean, if you want to think about the reason God has gifted you a marriage, here is the reason. It goes beyond your personal fulfillment all the way to this. God has given you the wonderful gift of a marriage so that you could look at the world and say, here's who God is. Here's who he is. And you can see it in the way that me and my spouse that we're relating to one another. So let me just press that down and end by saying a couple of things. God has gifted you with marriage, not just to satisfy a longing for companionship, but to give you an opportunity to tell the truth about him. To show a picture to the world of God's covenant love for his people. That's why God has given you that. And I just want to end by letting you linger over this question. Is your marriage telling the truth about God? Like right now, husband's in the room. Is it saying something true about God in the way that you are loving your wife? Ladies in the room, is it saying something true about the relationship between the church and her groom Jesus in the way that you are relating to your husband? Is it telling the truth about God? Won't you close your eyes and pray with me? And I just want to give you a moment to linger over that, to think about that.
one thing that I consistently pray in every wedding that I do, we just, as a whole group of people around the couple, we just stop and pray for them. And here's one thing that we pray, that their marriage would be a great representation of the marriage. That their earthly marriage would be such a wonderful, it would tell the truth about the eternal marriage that God has between himself and his bride. I just wonder what needs to happen in this room for us to paint a truer picture. Husbands, what needs to happen? Wives, what needs to happen? What sin needs to be turned from? What grudge needs to be let go? What new action needs to be taken up? Husbands, where do you need to grow up in the maturity? Where do you need to grow up and look more like Jesus in your marriage? Wives, where, where do you need to grow to become a faithful picture of the church's loving relationship to her groom, Jesus? That's what your marriage is for. And here is one thing that I know for every one of us in the room. It is impossible to faithfully represent Jesus in our marriage if we don't know Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, the first thing that has to happen is for you to say, I do to him. And, and please don't, don't think about what it means to become a Christian or, or what it means to be in relationship with God. Don't think of that as if you're just kind of adding God to like your life. So he's just going to be one more among the many things that are important in your life. That is not what it means to become a Christian. All, all that is, is inviting Jesus to be one more of the many lovers that you have in your life. Be becoming a Christian means that we are seeing that God has pursued us in the person and work of his son across enemy lines. And that Jesus himself has broken down every barrier, namely our sin and God's wrath. He's broken down every barrier between us and God. And Jesus has come and pursued us and he's won us over and he's bent down on one knee and he's looked you in the eye and said, will you marry me? Will you marry me? Will you come into this, this, this relationship of comprehensive oneness with me where I would be the supreme and preeminent relationship in your life, not one among many, but the relationship in your life. And becoming a Christian is that moment where we bow down with Jesus right there. We take his hands and we look at him and say, yes to that. I do. Put, putting your faith in Jesus is that moment where you come with the empty hands of faith. And you look at him and say, I don't to everything else and I do to you, Jesus. And if you haven't made that definitive step, may this be your moment. Right now, in this moment, right here. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.